Hi, crime junkies. It's Ashley here. And you all know how ready I am at any moment to drop down the rabbit holes of mysterious cases to look for answers. And there's actually one right now that I cannot stop spiraling about with more rabbit holes than I can count. In this season of Counterclock, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra begins investigating Doug Wag Jr.'s mysterious death after he was found struck on a strip of railroad tracks. But the more Delia has dug into this case, the stranger things have gotten. And you guys, there is truly so much going on. A string of mysterious deaths, a bank robbery gone wrong, conspiracy, corruption, and it may all be connected. You can binge all of Counterclock Season 6 right now in the Crime Junkie Fan Club, or you can listen to new episodes weekly wherever you get your podcasts. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, we know you personalize your entire day. That's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Hi, Crime Junkies. I am your host, Ashley Flowers. And I'm Britt. And today I'm going to tell you about the story I feel personally closest to because I've been so heavily invested in it for so long. This Wednesday, April 4th, 2018, will mark the 30-year anniversary of the day 8-year-old April Tinsley was found assaulted and murdered in Northeast Indiana. Although this is out of the jurisdiction for Crime Stoppers of Central Indiana, I want to emphasize the importance of the organization and what they do. Their mission is to offer a safe haven for tipsters so that if something horrific like this happens in Indianapolis, someone could report right away and hopefully we won't have to go 30 years without answers. If you want more information on how you can donate to the organization, you can go to crimetips.org. And if you're interested in volunteering your time or professional services from wherever you live, email crimestoppersvolunteer at gmail.com. I've been following this case for almost 10 years now, and I've been heavily researching it for the past six months. I've even met with April's family, and I get really worked up when I talk about this case because what was done to her is so violent and so awful that no person, much less an innocent eight-year-old girl, should have to go through that. But to me, what's worse is No one seems to care. No one I talk to knows the name April Tinsley when I bring it up. It's one of probably the most horrific crimes that have ever happened in Indiana. And when I ask people what they think about her case, they have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah, I remember when you brought this case to me, again, almost 10 years ago, I had never heard of it. Yeah, it was was funny. We actually had a listener whose name is April Tinsley. And she had written to us and I asked her, you know, I have to I have to ask you with your name. Are you very obsessed with the April Tinsley case? And even she had no idea what I was talking about. And it just makes me sad when you look at a case like 
Delphi, we covered Killer on the High Bridge. That case has been on every national media. Everyone knows about it. Mm-hmm. And that's how April's case was in 1988. And I have to wonder if it was just because it was 1988, there wasn't all this social media, if people have forgotten, or it makes me fearful that if the killer of the Delphi girls, Abby and Libby, isn't caught if we're going to be having this conversation in 30 years about them. So I just get really upset that something so horrific happened, but the attention span is so short for people that we mm-hmm. just forget about some some little girl who's so important. So I'm going to tell you the story, and I am begging anyone who lives in the Midwest or wherever you live, literally think of people you know. At the time, they thought this guy was local back then, and he very well could be. And this is the thing, is they have DNA in this case. This guy has done nothing else wrong. He could be a family man. He could be your next-door neighbor. He could be the guy you're sitting next to at church. So as I'm telling the story, please rack your brain. Please think of what you know. And if there's anything even close, submit a tip at the end. In 1988, April was eight years old, and she lived in Fort Wayne, Indiana, with her mom, dad, and little brother. Fort Wayne is about an hour and 45 minutes northeast of where I'm sitting in Indianapolis, and an hour and 45 minutes southeast of where you are, Britt, in South Bend. Yep, right in the middle. So on April 1st of 1988, it was actually Good Friday, and April wanted to play with her friends down the street. It was a chilly day and storm clouds were rolling in. So around 3.30, April tells her friends that she's going to go get her umbrella that she left at another friend's house. She was just three blocks away from her home at the time. So she leaves her friend's house, but she doesn't return. And the little girls obviously aren't concerned. They think maybe something happened. They think maybe she went home, but nothing alarming. And April's mom, Janet, doesn't even know anything's wrong at this point. And like I said, her friends don't either. But it doesn't take Janet long to realize that something has happened because just an hour after she last saw April, it was dinner time and April hadn't come home. So she goes around to check where she was, ask her friends, figure out. She hears a story about the umbrella. And it's such a short distance from where she was, you can literally see her friend's house if you walk to the side of April's. So when she walks over to her friend's house and no one has seen her, not the girl who had the umbrella, not the girl that she was with, she calls police. And since that day, Janet has been living a walking nightmare. Immediately after April's abduction, nearly 250 police officers and 50 residents started searching for any sign of her. They knew right away that this was an abduction likely, that she didn't just walk off. It was a neighborhood where a lot of people knew each other. And what they learned right away when they came out is that there was a witness who described seeing April forced into a battered blue pickup truck sometime between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock by a white man in his 30s with light brown hair. And they said that the ends of his hair were lighter than the roots, and he also had facial stubble. So with this witness testimony, that's how they knew something bad has happened. She isn't just hiding. She isn't at a friend's we don't know about. We need to search the entire area. Why wouldn't the witness say something before she went missing? If you see a little girl getting forced into a truck something's not right. I read in a couple of places that the witness was a young girl, so I can see if it was a young child. 
her not saying anything. Sometimes you don't know what you're witnessing. Right. But if that's the case, it also makes me think that maybe the age could be off. If you're really young, everyone seems old as hell to you. So maybe this guy wasn't 30. He could have been younger. Yes. (laughs) But I also read in a book about unsolved child murders, there was a short blurb about April, and it said the witnesses were two women who saw a young girl being forced into the truck and crying. And if that's the case, there's no excuse for why they didn't report this sooner and didn't say anything until police started canvassing the area. Whoever the initial witness was, the police used their account to put together a sketch of who they think took April, and then they release it to the public. And Brett, you have this sketch in front of you. Do you want to kind of describe it to our listeners? Um, It looks like your kind of typical late 20s, early 30s guy in the 80s. He's got longish hair, his eyes are kind of deep set, kind of thin lips. Sketch looks really grumpy, but it could be anybody. Yeah, kind of a long face. He does, I mean, he does. He looks like anyone and everyone, all every white guy in 1988. And I'm going to put this sketch on our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com so you guys can see it as well. And they continue looking for April and now they also start looking for this man, but they come up with nothing. And before police could even expand the search outside of Fort Wayne, April's body is found by a jogger around 3.30 the afternoon of April 4th. This jogger had discovered her laying in a ditch in Spencerville, Indiana, which is about 20 minutes northeast of Fort Wayne. Before they even did an autopsy, they knew that she might have been sexually assaulted. Even though she was clothed in the same clothes that she was wearing when she disappeared, which were blue slacks with three hearts on the left leg, a turtleneck sweater, a red jacket, and purple shoes, I heard that her underwear was actually put on inside out, and so this gave them an indication at some point she had been undressed. When police did the autopsy, they found out that she in fact had been sexually assaulted and her cause of death was suffocation. I can't find the exact time of death, but in an article I found in the Pharaoh's Tribune from Logansport, Indiana, they quoted the autopsy as saying that she had been dead 24 to 48 hours. And in an interview with police years later, they make a comment on how she could have been held captive and tortured for up to three days. So I'm thinking their best guess is she was killed 24 hours before she was found, which would have been Easter Sunday. Reports also said that it appeared April had been killed at another location and then dumped along the roadside at most only four hours before she was found. So four hours at the earliest. That would mean like 11.30 a.m.? Did the murderer just dump her on his lunch break? If that's a possibility, then... He must be working close to the dump site or live near the dump site. Yeah, usually bodies are disposed of near places people are comfortable with, where they know the area well, they know when people won't be around. So I have to think that they narrowed it down to this four-hour window because before then, someone had to have gone by and seen nothing. So they know that it was after 11.30. But yeah, it's totally possible that this guy could have been on a lunch break Or maybe not, maybe he took the day off, like I have no idea, but he would have likely been living local or working local. They were able to get DNA from the crime scene, but in 1988, there wasn't much that they could do with it. But they at least knew to hold it and preserve it, and they didn't have anything here in Indiana where they could test it super well, but they did send it off for testing to get some kind of profile. 
They continue to canvas and look for witnesses, and all they find is a motorist who reported to have seen a blue truck stopped early Sunday in the middle of the road where April was found. But even though the truck sounds like a match to the one seen at April's abduction site, this contradicts that coroner who was quoted in the paper as saying she was only in the ditch for four hours at most before she was discovered on Monday afternoon. And at first, there's a lot of traction with this case that makes police and the community really hopeful. On April 11th of 1988, police announced that a 34-year-old man named Everett Dwayne Schull Jr. is sought for questioning in April's murder after a huge number of people call Crime Stoppers in Fort Wayne to report that the man's resemblance to the composite is astounding. Also, the callers are reporting that he has been telling friends that he has knowledge of April's death and that a blue pickup truck has been parked outside of his home several times, so he would have had access to it. But after interrogating him for eight hours, they actually end up charging him on a different case. He's charged with the molestation of an 11-year-old girl, and I'm pretty sure this was the guy's girlfriend's daughter and this molestation had taken place in the October before in 1987. Police take blood and hair samples from him and they actually have four other suspects at the time which they don't name that they take samples from as well and all of these men are questioned their samples are taken and then they're sent off to a lab I believe in Maryland to get tested. Once these five men have their hair and DNA taken and sent for testing Everyone starts talking about satanic rituals and satanic panic sets in, which happened a ton in the 80s and early 90s. But the police looked into it and eventually ended up ruling it out. Yeah, I feel like for the time, it was kind of the go-to excuse for something that was so horrific you really couldn't explain it. Yeah, and I don't think the police ever really believed it, but there was so much going on in the community, I think they ruled it out just to put everyone's mind to ease. But on May 24th, Everett is actually released from jail because he's acquitted of the unrelated molestation charges that happened in October. Police say he passed two polygraph examinations in questioning about April's death, and he was never charged in her case. Skip to August 9th, officials announced that all five men's hair and blood samples that were sent to the lab failed to exclude or include them as suspects. But they have the DNA. How can that not include or exclude them? I don't know. I have to think that maybe this is 1990 again. They did, did not have a full profile. So maybe they could say, I can't say for sure it's not them. Like the probabilities are too low. It could be, but it's not a definite match, if that makes sense. Like there's not enough markers exactly that they know of to compare and really make that differentiation. Exactly. That's kind of, if you remember what happened in the Delphi case, they had a person of interest and they couldn't include or exclude them. And now, I, I don't know why, because we have DNA has come so far, but it, it still drives me crazy. But after they have these five men that they kind of rule out, and I assume they're fully ruled out now because no one has ever come back to them. And in 2018, we have a full profile, but nothing happens. April's mom really felt like it had to have been someone they knew because April was a fighter and she wouldn't have gone off with anyone. It's not like she would just walk away with somebody that she didn't know. Is there a chance she could have been chloroformed? I think it's possible, but if we are to believe that the two adult witnesses saw her crying, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. And nobody said that she 
adult or non-adult, nobody said that she looked unconscious when she was being taken away. Police did interviews of everyone in the area. They were bringing in every known sex offender, and they really believed, and still to this day, that this guy was a local. Kind of like Abby and Libby's case that we covered in the Killer on the High Bridge episode. They're pretty sure the guy is within a pretty close radius. Yeah, so I have to think, in both cases, there's something that we don't know that are making police really sure. And I think part of it is they think he was really comfortable with the area. He took her just blocks from her own home, knew that he wouldn't get caught, was comfortable enough, and then put her in a place that was also near the same area and knew it and knew he wouldn't get caught putting her body there. I don't know if they have more than that, but that certainly leads me to believe that he's somebody who's familiar with the area. Additionally, he would have had to likely have somewhere that he could have held her for a couple of days before, between the time that he abducted her and the time he left her body in Spencerville. And this theory of police that everyone was kind of like going off of just because he seemed familiar with the area was confirmed two years later when writing showed up on a barn not far from where April's body was found. And on the side of this barn, someone scrawled this message. I kill eight-year-old April Marie Tinsley. I will kill again. Ha ha. And this message, again, I'm going to put this on our website so you can see the picture of this barn. And it's the I kill eight-year-old April Marie Tinsley, I will kill again, is on one side. And then the ha ha is very light on the right next to it. Yeah, I was looking for it and really had to focus to find it. The writing almost looks like childlike. and I can't describe it any more than that. I mean, it looks really crude. Granted, you're not writing on a piece of paper. You're writing on the side of a barn door. Yeah, but even the fact that they use the word kill instead of killed, it does seem really childish. Yeah, even the sentence structure and it's the, the writing's messy. It's like some letters are really, really close together. Some are really far apart. The lines are crooked. There's three lines of text. They're not really lined up together. They wave. They shift back and forth. And it looks like it was done the first time with something really light and then traced over again to make it stand out. Yeah, it looks like a pencil was maybe used first, but we know at one point he goes over it with a crayon because crayons were found nearby at the barn. And police and FBI have all linked this note on the side of the barn to her killer. And I'm not sure how they're 100% sure it was him and not just like a hoax. I guess there could be two ways. Could it be that they maybe found DNA on the crayons that could have been matched to the sample that was found on April? Yeah, but that seems kind of unlikely because it was only two years later. This is 1990 when they were finding this writing on the barn. And I'd be surprised if they could pull touch DNA off of crayons back then. It's it's something that they might have been able to link years, years later, but they were sure in 1990 that this was their guy. My other theory is maybe they found a note with her body that they never told the public about. That's very possible. I did hear a rumor as well, only in very few places, so I don't know if this is true, that April was found missing one shoe. And in this rumor, they also say that above the area where the killer wrote ha ha on the barn, you can't see, so we only have this one picture online of this message. And apparently above the ha ha, there is another message that asks if the police ever found her other shoe. 
But this, again, is very much a rumor. It's never been stated by police or FBI how they know it's linked, but they've never said if, and, or but. They say it's 100% him, done by the same person. So I think that they have something we don't know about, whether it's DNA, whether it's a note that was found with her body, or an extra note that we haven't learned about. They have something to know because from day one, they were saying this isn't a joke. We know that this is the same guy. The police did canvass the area and they found a boy who said he saw someone in the area multiple times over the last couple of days. And every time the guy was coming back, the message was getting a little bit darker on the barn. But this was really far away and he wasn't able to give any better description than they got from the witnesses at the abduction site. That means he'd have to go back to the barn multiple times. That seems kind of risky. Yeah, I, again, and this is why I think it builds into this profile that he's familiar with the area. I almost think he had to have been watching and waiting for police to come. He's not just going to go write this message and then leave and go out of town or he's not like a passer through. He knew that the first time he wrote it in pencil, if that's the case, that no one saw it. And so he comes back and writes it over and over and traces over and over until somebody sees it. It's such a nice perk to have the flexibility to work in all sorts of places. But working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network, which is why you should check out T-Mobile. They're America's largest and fastest 5G network. Plus, they also cover more highway miles with 5G than anyone else. And that's been great for me especially because these last few months, I've been doing a lot of on-the-ground reporting with our team from northern Wisconsin to Utah to the middle of nowhere, Indiana. No matter where I go, I'm able to stream, make calls, or get those case-altering DMs from sources, which that's my favorite part. With T-Mobile, you'll be covered in more places with the 5G speed you need for your life on the go. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. Fastest based on median overall combined 5G speeds, according to analysis by Ookla of Speedtest Intelligence Data Q3 2023. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're anything like me, when you have something weighing on your mind that's taking up time and energy, the best thing you can do is to talk about it. But sometimes that's also one of the hardest things to do too. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crime Junkie today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Crime Junkie. After they get this writing on the barn and this message from the killer, it feels like they're so close. He's still here. He's taunting police. But then nothing happens with April's case for 14 more years. Why did you say it like that, though? 
like nothing happened with April's case specifically. Because something did happen shortly after this barn door incident, but police and FBI won't connect it to April. So I want to tell you all of April's story first, and then I will go back at the end and tell you this strange thing that happened after this barn door incident that some people say is connected. So the investigation wasn't considered cold, but there were no arrests made, no DNA matches for 14 years. Then the creepiest thing ever happened. In the spring of 2004, 14 years after the bar note, 16 years after April was found, notes start showing up at various residences around Fort Wayne area. Several were on the bikes of little girls that were left in the front yard, and some were in the mailbox where a little girl lived. All of these notes were on lined yellow paper. And here's an example of what one of them said. Hi, honey. I've been watching you. I am the same person that kidnapped and rape and kill April Tinsley. You are my next victim. If you don't report this to police and I don't see this on the paper tomorrow or on the local news 07, I will blow up you. So I'm looking at a picture of the note right now and it's super creepy. And it looks really similar to the writing on the barn. There's a lot of misspellings. It's really childish writing. Yeah, we have a full copy of this note on the website, but he misspells things all over the map. Like honey is spelt with two O's. Yeah. Even April's name is spelt wrong, which is, he spells it in this note, A-P-R-O-I-L, April, which is interesting because when he wrote her name on the barn, he spelt it correctly then. It seems really intentional though. Like he's trying to make his handwriting look like not his and maybe misspelling things to throw off police too. But I don't think he does a good job because like I said, he misspells April when he already spelled it correctly on the barn. I don't get what the point is. I mean, unless his whole point is is just to throw them off and to confuse us because we are confused 30 years later, so maybe it worked. But in all of the notes, he starts the greeting as always, hi, honey. And in all of the notes, there's always a part where he says, I've been watching you. And there's some clips we have from the other notes. And in one of the clips, it says, I am the same person, our kidnapped and rape and murder, April Tinsley. You are next. Ha ha. And again, in this note, he spells April A-P-R-A-L. So totally different again. But we have the same ha ha that was found on the barn. And there's one more note that we get a clip of, but not the whole thing. And it's the very bottom. You can tell it's the end of the note. It says, house, period, killing everyone but you. You will be mine. And then he double underlines it. And there's something really strange at the bottom of this that like no one talks about. And I don't know if it just doesn't matter and I'm reading too much into it. But it almost looks like someone who's going to sign the bottom of a letter. And then they're like, oh, crap, I don't want to put my name on this. Because it looks like an M and then the beginning of an A. If you look at the A's in the rest of his notes, it looks exactly like the top of an A. And it's just that. It's just an M and then a little hump. And I have no idea what that means. There's nothing like this in the 
other letters. I, again, I don't know if he was starting to sign his signature and realize he wasn't supposed to. And my husband weighed in on this a little bit because I was obviously showing him this and thought it was super strange. It was something that in the six months I hadn't picked up. And as I was putting this together, I was like, why? What is this M? What does it mean? And he thought something else was interesting. He said the double underline thing is something that accountants do. If you're doing like an income statement or a balance sheet on all of the main forms, you use like a single line if you're going to keep like adding numbers to it and keep like racking it up. But at the very bottom to show that it's the end and it's final, you do two lines. That is something I would have never thought of. That's really interesting, though. I have no idea. Like, I would have never, ever seen that. I wonder FBI have, but I don't know if police ever thought that. But it takes someone like my my husband's obviously in finance. And so when he saw that, that was the first thing that he saw. Yeah, definitely. Did the notes stop after this one? You know, I don't know. They didn't say... Most of them were found like at around the exact same time and they didn't say in which the order that they were found. Okay. I will say though, when they're online, this one always comes last. So it's possible. And that's something that I hadn't thought about either. Was this him saying like, okay, now I'm done for 2004. Super weird. But take all of this with a grain of salt because the FBI profile done on this guy, which I'll read in full later, says that he is low to mid-low income, which wouldn't fit with an accountant or someone in finance. Could the person who wrote the letters be different from the person who wrote the note on the barn? Maybe this guy is just some copycat who had nothing to do with April. And you know, I think that was everyone's first thought, or at least hope, because like, what's worse? Is it worse that someone is a jerk and they're running around making fun of and poking a family that's in pain and just doing this as a hoax? Or is it worse to think that it is the person who is still living among you 16 years later and still watching these little girls? But we know it's not a hoax because with all of these letters, they were all placed inside like plastic baggies. And with every single one, he also included something else either a Polaroid picture or a used condom. Ugh, why? I think it's partly shock value. This guy gets off on the idea of knowing these little girls would come in contact with this picture or these condoms. But I think it may also have been his way of A, showing that he was smarter than the cops and he can still get away with this, and B, proving that it isn't a hoax. Because I'm sure that's what he thought everyone would think. And he wanted to prove that it was really him. And they used the DNA from these used condoms to match it to the crime scene and prove that whoever was leaving these notes was the same guy who killed April 16 years ago and the same guy who wrote that message on the barn 14 years ago. And by this time in 2004, they were able to get a much better profile from April's crime scene and it was a for sure match. Were these notes found in the morning, in the middle of the day, at night? When was all this happening? Because if he's dropping these off in the middle of the day, that's pretty ballsy. Yeah, so they weren't mailed. They were for sure obviously dropped off because only one of them was found in a mailbox and the rest were on these little girls' bicycles. Some people reported seeing a forest green truck during the day with tinted windows. So I think that's something that police continue to look at and the public needs to be very aware of. Who do you know that owned or had access to a blue pickup truck in 88, but then owned or had access to a forest green pickup truck in 2004? And yeah, he had to have been super confident. And this is, again, something that points to them saying he 
is from this area. He is a local. He feels like he can just drive through these neighborhoods, drop something off on a little girl's bike, and no one's even going to notice. He doesn't look out of place. He knows when he can do it and not get caught. And they even think that maybe he lived somewhere nearby to where he would be able to watch the reaction of these girls when they found this. You mentioned that in some of the notes there were condoms, but others had a Polaroid picture. Of what? So the pictures were usually of the killer's body. He would take snapshots of himself from the waist down, and in one of the pictures, he was actually on a bed masturbating, and the pictures showed his penis and his legs. And again, he's he, we know he's an average-sized white guy. He has hairy legs. The only thing new they gleaned from this about him specifically was that he was circumcised. But even though his body didn't really give anything away, there was something really distinctive in the picture. In the background on the bed that he was laying on was a very unique bedspread or quilt. And Britt, you have a picture pulled up of this bedspread, right? Yes. Okay, do you want to describe it to people who are listening? I know the quality isn't great. It's from a Polaroid picture, but it's pretty distinctive, right? It looks like it's maybe paisley, olive green, and maybe a light blue. And if you aren't sure what paisley is, it's kind of a teardrop shape that's bent into a comma-ish. But there's usually a lot of colors and patterns that go on. It's very typical when you think of like 70s clothing. Very groovy, if you will. Yeah, and there's something kind of like floral looking about Paisley, Mm -hmm. Um, but it has a lot going on. So it's this blue-green, and police search all of the local motels in the area looking for any of them that used something similar. But they didn't find anything. Like, nothing came up in every Fort Wayne motel, hotel. They could not find this bedspread. So does that mean that they think that it's in someone's home? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, that I think that's the assumption. I'm not sure how far they canvassed outside of Fort Wayne, but what they keep believing at this point is that it is. It's in someone's home or at least a place with a bed that they had access to that isn't a motel hotel. But they put this bedspread all over the news asking if anyone recognized it and this is what makes me so crazy because i just know this case hasn't reached the right people yet and it hasn't reached everyone because someone has to have seen that bedspread and like either someone made it someone bought it someone manufactured it but no one has been able to find it and it drives me absolutely insane Wait, you said this was in 2004, right? Yeah. So it's kind of weird that he's using a Polaroid at all, right? It is. And this is a clue that police looked heavily into. In 2004, a lot of people had those point-and-shoot digital cameras. I mean, I had one. Oh, we, so yeah, police, we had one, definitely. We had so many selfies. <laughs> so police tried to find out who would have owned or had access to a Polaroid locally. And they even went so far as to try and track down the makers of the film that they used and was printed on these pictures, but it didn't lead anywhere. As far as I could find, they didn't track down anything significant that would lead them to a specific person. And it makes sense for someone like this killer to own it. A lot of pedophiles are known to use Polaroids because there's no tracking it. It's self-developing. You don't have to take it in somewhere. It's really kind of hidden. Yeah, it's like a pedophile's like best dream i mean you don't like you said you don't have to take in your film to get developed there's no way to track the actual camera itself back to you there's you don't have to register a polaroid and so many times when they find people who are pedophiles and who are keeping collections of children it's so often on polaroid film spring has sprung and so has allergy season but when it comes to the cost of your allergy meds and other prescriptions checking good rx can help you save and stay healthy 
GoodRx is the free, fast, and easy way to find the prescriptions you need at a lower price. With GoodRx, you can instantly find discounts, compare prices, and save up to 80% at the pharmacy. GoodRx is accepted at all major pharmacies in your neighborhood, including CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid, Bonds, Walmart, Sam's Club, and many more. And remember, GoodRx works whether you have insurance or not. Even if you have insurance, GoodRx may beat your copay price. So if you're looking for seasonal allergy relief with low-cost prescription medications, GoodRx is a walk in the park for you this spring. For simple, smart savings on your prescriptions, check GoodRx. Go to goodrx.com slash crimejunkie. That's goodrx.com slash crimejunkie. Well, another few years go by where nothing pans out. April deserves justice, but it's also at this point a safety issue for the community. This guy is basically saying, I'm this close to your children and you can't catch me. So around 2009, the investigation ramps up again. FBI offers their CARD team, and CARD stands for Child Abduction Rapid Deployment. This team brings a bunch of specialists together in one room, and it includes personnel from the Behavioral Analysis Unit who profile offenders, personalities, traits and motives, along with agents and analysts from the Crimes Against Children Unit, coordinators from the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime, and representatives from the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, which is VICAP. CARD consists of 48 members organized into 10 different teams in five regions around the country, and as of 2009, these teams had been deployed 38 times and aided in the recovery of 18 children. And as suggested by their name, CARD usually responds to urgent non-family abductions, but they also work on cold cases like April's if they think there's enough evidence to break the case. So that just shows you, police are like, you guys have ample evidence something is bound to break in this. So the team joins forces with the police and they say that with all the evidence they have, there's a really strong chance that they are going to find this guy. And they even release a profile of who they think their killer is. And before they release this, they release a statement, which I'm going to have Britt read. The statement is... The one significant advantage that we as criminal behaviorists have in looking at this case is the sheer volume of offender behavior we have to consider. This behavior has been demonstrated over the course of 16 years. And 16 years is way more than they usually have to go off of. Yeah, and we already know 100% that he's a Caucasian and would have been in his 40s to 50s in 2009, so that has to help narrow it down even more. Right. And I'm going to read you their profile in full and then we can discuss after. In their profile, they started by saying what we know about April Tinsley's killer. We call this individual a preferential child sex offender. By that, we mean he has a long-term and persistent sexual desire for children. In this case, the offender has demonstrated a specific sexual interest in little girls who have not yet reached puberty. In other words, he's attracted to hairless, undeveloped girls. This interest will not go away. Girls between the ages of 5 and 10 would greatly appeal to him. This does not mean he cannot interact sexually with adults or even older children, but his overwhelming sexual fantasies and desires focus on young girls. He may be married. However, the vast majority of preferential child sex offenders are not. If he has a long-term intimate adult partner, that partner will have an idea that this individual has sexual interest in little girls, but may be in denial regarding the extent of that interest or his ability to act on it. 
This offender may establish relationships that give him access to little girls. For instance, he may date or befriend someone in the little girl's family. Perhaps he'll seek employment or volunteer activities that give him proximity to little girls. He will be drawn to places where children congregate, playgrounds, swimming pools, parks, etc. Wherever he goes, if a little girl is nearby, his eyes will follow her. He may go out of his way to interact with her. In an unguarded moment, he may even make a casual sexual reference about a little girl, which, if overheard, would strike someone as very inappropriate, such as, she's a sexy little thing, isn't she? Most of us do not associate adult attention towards a child with sexual attraction. People noticing his interest in little girls may simply interpret it as someone who just, quote, loves kids. This offender prefers the company of children to the company of adults, and he may be socially awkward or inappropriate when interacting with adults. A preferential child sex offender tends to collect things that serve to support his fantasies and are consistent with his sexual preferences. In this case, since our offender's preference is for little girls, he may collect images of little girls perhaps clothed, candid pictures, or even child pornography, and probably both. He may take these pictures himself, or he may find them through other sources. He may also collect other items that are arousing to him and remind him of little girls that he wants. These other items could range from articles of clothing to advertisements depicting little girls to Hello Kitty items or any toys that little girls find appealing. The public tends to think that once a person kidnaps, rapes, and kills, he will always kidnap, rape, and kill. In reality, a preferential child sex offender can engage in a lot of different behaviors that satisfy his sexual needs but do not rise to the level of the prior offense. The offender may substitute nuisance sex offenses like peeping, indecent exposure, and leaving obscene notes or sexual items for a child to find. If the item is left in a mailbox or on a front door, the resident may think it was intended for an adult female in the home rather than a little girl who lives there. Oftentimes, these incidents are not reported because the significance of the offense is not recognized by the citizens at the time. If the preferential child sex offender has a criminal history, it's more likely to involve sex offenses against children. After 2004, there have been no known activity by this offender, but we've seen gaps in years in his activity before, as in the 1990s, and this could be explained a number of ways. One, he could be institutionalized, hospital or prison. Two, he could have ongoing access to a victim that satisfies his desire for a child partner through a relationship with an adult caretaker. Three, he could have relocated, or four, he could be deceased since June of 2004. The primary value of describing this offender is to appeal for the public's help in identifying him. This offender has demonstrated that he has strong ties to Northeast Fort Wayne and Allen County. This is where he likely lives, works, and or shops. You may be standing next to him in line at the grocery store sitting beside him in the pew at church, or working beside him on the production line. We've said that the offender is currently in his 40s or 50s. However, if you know someone who seems to fit the characteristics described above, but is a few years older or younger, please do not hesitate to report this information. Wow, that's a lot of information in the profile. Yeah, I I feel like they at least feel they have a really good idea of the kind of person this guy is. But to boil it all down, here is what we're looking for. 
he is a white male who's circumcised. His current age is likely between 40 to 50. He lives and or works in the northeast section of Fort Wayne or Allen County. He frequents places where children like to be and focuses specifically on little girls. They think he has a low to mid-low income, owned or borrowed a Polaroid camera in 2004. He has hair on his lower legs. And in 2004, he possibly owned or borrowed a forest green pickup truck having a matching camper shell with dark tinted windows. Not mentioned in the profile, but from other stuff I've read online, FBI also say this guy might have a disorder called dysgraphia. According to the Learning Disabilities Association of America, a person with dysgraphia may have problems including illegible handwriting, inconsistent spacing, poor spatial planning on paper, poor spelling, and difficulty composing writing as well as thinking and writing at the same time. I read like way more than I ever need to on dysgraphia and the one thing that stood out was that a person with this disorder will spell words incorrectly in and in many different ways. So if he actually does have this, it would explain why he would spell April's name differently and wrong in all these different places. So it could be that he wasn't faking the handwriting or the misspellings at all. You'd think that this would be something that people would recognize though. I've never known anyone personally to have this disorder. So you would think it would stand out. And I tried to look up statistics on this specific learning disability to see how many people could be affected, but it's still super unknown and super new. But this guy could be low income with a learning disability, or he could be really smart with a great job like an accountant and be clever enough to fake dumb. Yeah, you know, my gut, I tend to lean towards the second option, but... With so many law enforcement professionals saying otherwise, I would tell everyone to believe them. They have more information than has been released to us, and I have to believe there's a reason that they've come to the conclusion that he's probably low income and may have this learning disability and isn't just faking his handwriting. But again, that wasn't included in his profile, so it might be something that they are unsure about, and he very well still could be faking this handwriting and misspellings. In the same year that they brought the FBI in and they did this profile, America's Most Wanted airs a special on April's case. And I freaking love John Walsh. <laughs> he was my, a lot of people attribute their love for true crime to unsolved mysteries, but 100% I started with true crime because of America's Most Wanted. <laughs> oh my God. Every Saturday night, John Walsh is my date. I Every episode, every single episode. So they featured her story. And although there would be no break in April's case that night, nearly 50 tips were called in, and most of them from the Fort Wayne area, providing information relating to the killer's distinctive notes, that bedspread, and the picture that the killer had taken. And they even gave the names of some potential suspects. But that was in 2009, and three years went by, and none of those leads or suspects panned out into anything tangible. So, America's Most Wanted came back to Fort Wayne to do a follow-up on the case. While taping the episode, police revealed that at one point in time, they had over 513 suspects, not persons of interest, full suspects. And as of 2009, they had narrowed it down to 81. And I'm not sure where the list stands today, but obviously they still do not have their guy. It's so crazy that we've never heard any names though. 
In all of your research, did you ever come across anyone other than Everett? No, I thought this was weird too. I came across other names, but only in online forums and never from police. In the 30 years that they were investigating this case, I haven't been able to find any news article that mentions a name other than Everett. And they don't mention a person of interest. They don't mention a suspect, just that they have suspects. When they're on America's Most Wanted for the follow-up, they open up about another huge huge clue found at the scene of the crime that they had never released before. And the police always do this. What we get in the media is never all of it. Most of the time, they will hold back specific things so that if and when someone comes forward, they can verify that this is actually their guy. And they do this to protect the trial. So if they ever find someone and they go to trial, they want to be able to point to specific things and say only this person could have known. X, Y, and Z. If they release everything they have, every crackpot's going to come out of the woodwork and confess to these cases. They have no way to weed out who actually knows stuff, who doesn't, and then they really don't have a case when they go to trial. Well, one of the things that they kept to themselves at the time when April was found, but they released on this America's Most Wanted episode, was that near her body was a plastic Sears shopping bag, and inside the bag was a sex toy. It was a large penis-shaped object with a metal crank at the bottom, and it's called a Benoit Squirmy Manual Crank, and I can't even find these online anymore. Investigators said the object is unique in design, and it could be recognized by a former intimate partner of April's killer. There's a picture we have of this sex toy, and it's it's so disturbing. Like, I mean, yeah, it's... anything that happens to a young girl, knowing that she was kept for possibly days and assaulted and then murdered, I mean, it's, it's horrible. But to see that he not only assaulted her, but what he may have used on her, it, it makes, me, it makes yeah. me sick to my stomach. And I don't know how April's family, like what they have to have gone through, like looking at this and imagining what happened to their daughter it makes it makes me so angry that this guy is still out there and I have I have a picture and I you know I might get some flack for posting it online I'm not posting it for shock value or anything like that but I think it's important. The police thought it was important enough to show on America's Most Wanted because it is. I've never seen any sex toy that looks like this with this metal crank on the end of it. It's so specific that if someone were to have ever found this in someone's home or if someone were to have ever suggested they use it on a partner, it's something that you would have to remember So I'm only posting it for the same reason that police showed it on America's Most Wanted. If someone recognizes it, I think this is the key to the case. If you, I mean, you know, you think someone is a nice person, you can't come to grips with them being a bad person. But to see something like this, you would have to give someone up or at least suggest to police, hey, check out this guy. Even after they released this new clue, nothing new surfaces. But there was another big reveal in 2016. Parabon Snapshot is a company that takes DNA and they do like a DNA phenotyping. So they look at all the genetic markers and they can come to an educated guess on what this person might look like. And they take the DNA from April's crime scene and they are able to determine likely characteristics 
based on this guy's genetics. And what it predicts, it usually can do ancestry, eye color, hair color, skin color, freckling, and face shape. Along with their predictions, they also give a degree of confidence because not all of our appearance is based on genetics. It can be influenced by the environment as well. So it's not a 100% thing, but they put the DNA into this system and they release two photographs. One of them is what they thought the guy would have looked like in 1988. And then they do like an aged progression of what he would look like in 2016. And Britt, do you want to like give a snapshot of what you're seeing? Because I know you're looking at these pictures with me. Yeah, it's again, your everyday normal guy, longish face, maybe kind of prominent nose, thin lips, um, pretty heavy brow, brown hair. Green, green eyes brown eyes yeah they say hazel eyes but again it could be anybody it's the guy you see at the grocery store yep and that's what they said is you know they get his ancestry that he is likely european he has hazel eyes he has brown hair he's likely to have some freckles it's hard looking at this and trying to compare it to that black and white sketch that was done back in 1988. I think if they were to furrow this guy's brow, make his hair a little bit longer, and even his face a little bit longer, it would be very similar. But it's hard to, to see this guy and not see a ton of people that, that we know. Definitely. And over 400 DNA samples have been submitted over the years and nothing has been matched. This guy is still out there. He isn't getting into any serious trouble because his DNA hasn't been collected. There has been, in the last year or two, a new law where if you're convicted in Indiana of a felony, your DNA has to be taken. So they've done sweeps of the jails and people who are in prison and convicted of felonies, and he's not in prison. He could be dead or he could still be out there. And again, this snapshot was released in 2016, And there's been no movement on the case since then. Her case is cold. Like I said, the 30-year anniversary is coming up on April 4th, the day she was found. And her family still has no answers. Police have no leads. And they're looking for any new information that people can provide. We can't end the episode yet, though. You still have to tell me what happened after the barn writing that the police said was unrelated. Oh, right, right, right. So... Three weeks after that message was left on the barn, in June of 1990, another girl, seven-year-old Sarah Boker, who was also a first grader like April, but at different schools, disappeared from her Fort Wayne apartment complex. And it's worth noting that she was last seen at 3.30, and April was last seen around the same time when she went missing. She, like April was with people she was with her half-sister but then she said like left her half-sister said i'm gonna go visit another friend at the complex just like april was gonna go to another friend's house but she never made it there sarah's parents said that she'd been afraid of strangers since april's abduction in 1988 and and they expressed doubt that she would ever have gone with a stranger voluntarily kind of like april's mom was saying there's no way she wouldn't put up a crazy fight and sarah's body was found the next day in a nearby ditch and like april sarah had been sexually assaulted and suffocated but for unknown reasons the fbi after analyzing the case said that they didn't believe that the same perpetrator was responsible 
But the coroner who examined both the bodies, who was Dr. Philip O'Shaughnessy, publicly stated that he believed it was the same killer. In 1995, police officially closed Sarah's case and said they had enough evidence to prove that a dead man named Roy Hensley, who had died in 1994, was their killer. He was an elderly man who was a former neighbor and knew Sarah, but he also knew April. And Hensley came to investigators' attention in May of 1992, two years after Sarah's murder, when a relative came to police with suspicions that the man might have been involved in Sarah's death. But here's the thing, I mean, FBI swears up and down, it's not the same person. Fort Wayne police have closed Sarah's case, but I keep going back to Dr. Philip O'Shaughnessy who said, I think the same person killed both of them. There's too much similarity between the two cases. If they have enough evidence to say that Roy Hensley killed Sarah, then I believe Roy Hensley killed April Tinsley also. The problem with this is Roy Hensley was long gone and buried when the letters with DNA came connected to April. So we know for sure that Roy probably didn't kill April unless, I mean, it would be crazy. Someone would have to, be like a relative of his and like have old DNA but I mean nothing makes sense it's it's totally bananas to think that Roy would have done it right yeah it seems really far-fetched I agree they're different people now and the only thing I don't know is the more I'm talking to police about different cases and in doing this podcast I've learned a lot more about DNA than I thought I did and to me you either had DNA or you didn't have DNA but what I'm finding is there's all these different rules about number of markers and whether or not you can we could have dna and have markers to compare to but not necessarily in the national database and i have no idea what they have on april they have enough to compare people to but is it enough to know if it's a relative like say roy hensley had a son do they have enough i would i would think that they do this far into the game in 2018, but I don't know for sure. And so that's the only question mark, but I don't think Roy did it, but that doesn't mean necessarily that the cases aren't connected. It just means that the person they said killed Sarah probably wasn't Roy, if they're connected. Does that make sense? I think it does. I just think it's super weird that, you know, before April was abducted and murdered, they hadn't had a case of a child abduction in over 10 years. So for two girls about the exact same age in the same grade to go missing in such a similar way and then both be found in a ditch sexually assaulted and suffocated within two years of each other. It seems like more of a coincidence, don't you think? It seems so unlikely for it to happen in a community like this in such similar ways to not be connected, but I come back to it. I don't think they are. Yeah. And 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 police don't think they are either. So they've said over and over, even April's family, when I met with her mom, she trusts police and says that they are not connected. So I have to, again, believe they have something that we don't. So maybe this guy, if it was Roy, and Sarah's family fully believes Roy killed her, if he maybe saw what happened to April and that planted a seed in him and then he acted out. But there's definitely something they have, whether it's at the crime scenes or DNA or something that proves that they're not connected. But it was for a while a red herring that was planted in the middle of this case back then that may have actually confused things. So there is a memorial happening this coming 
week for anyone local who wants to come out and show support for April's family. It's going to be held at April's Garden, which is a little memorial that's actually in the neighborhood where she lived. It's going to be held at 5 p.m. on April 4th, and they're going to do a balloon release. If it rains that day, they're going to push it to the 5th at the same time, and we'll post information on the location and times on our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com. And I also recommend everyone going on Facebook and following April's Facebook page. If you search April Marie Tinsley, T-I-N-S-L-E-Y, show your support for the family. Let them know that there are people out there 30 years later that still care about their daughter, that are still looking for this horrible guy that did this to her. And as of the time of this recording, there were only 1,675 people in the whole world that cared enough to like or follow that page, which to me is... It's not... Right. It's not enough. And it's so upsetting that you can count 1,600 people that still care what's going on. And it's her parents that run the page. They do everything themselves. So go on, show your support, share their stuff. And I encourage you, take what we learned today, that profile. If you are local or even if you're not, we don't know where this guy is today. He could be anywhere. Look at the pictures. Look at the handwriting take in consideration the profile and if there's anyone you know who even remotely fits this profile submit a tip and i know people think like it sounds crazy like how would someone listening know who this guy is but i have to tell you brit that like as i was living in this for the last six months and i was staring at that dna composite day in and day out i couldn't shake the feeling that i knew that guy that i had seen that guy and at first i tried to write it off as he looks like every guy i mean we said it in the episode but one day i was sitting at my desk and it just hit me that i grew up near this guy and i submitted a tip and it could be nothing i know so and you know this guy too is it the picture looks exactly like Oh my God, you're right. Yeah. And what's really strange, it's not just that it looks like him. So around the time that this picture of, with like the DNA composite was released, he drastically changed his appearance. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, he did. That's, oh my gosh, full body chills. I know. And that that letter where we talked about the end, where it was signed with that M, part of his name starts with an M, mm-hmm. which again could be nothing. But there was stuff in his home too that, you know, we can talk about offline, but there was stuff in his home that made me uncomfortable. And I don't know where he was. You know, we weren't even born when this happened. But this is exactly what I'm saying. Like, I think when someone recognizes someone, they go through every reason not to report it and to try and write it off and to say that it's normal but let the police decide if there's even a smidgen of a chance this guy there's a reason he's gone 30 years without being caught is because somebody out there is seeing this information and saying there's no way it could be this guy so if you have a tip as small or as big as it is i encourage you to submit this and you can do that by contacting the fort wayne police department by calling one two six zero four two seven one four zero four or you can email april info at ci dot ft dash wayne dot in dot us and if you want to give a tip anonymously you can do that through the fort wayne crime stoppers at two six zero four three six stop
Thank you all for listening to this episode. This was a super important one for us today. And please, this is the 30th anniversary coming up. Share this episode with your friends. Get this information out there. The only way April's going to have justice and her family's going to find some kind of closure is if this guy is caught. And the only way he's going to get caught is by more people hearing about this, caring about this, and caring about April. If you want to see any of the stuff that we talked about today, you can go to our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at crimejunkiepod and on Instagram at crimejunkiepod. We'll be back next week with a new crime. Crime Junkie is written and hosted by me. All of our sound production and editing comes from Britt Praywatt. And all of our music, including our theme, comes from Justin Daniel. Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? (laughs) 